weapons can be funny things. Uh, even different definitions that you can see for the most commonly used words or, or concepts, uh, how those can differ uh, depending on your particular point of view. I think of just a simple word like, like hope. Uh, a, a popular definition, uh, this is roughly Merriam-Webster's uh, definition, uh, it, is, it means to want something to happen or to be true. To want something to happen or to be true. That's the popular common definition. That stands in stark contrast, however, to a, from a, a different perspective, a, a biblical uh, perspective, a biblical point of, of view. The Bible would define hope in this way, the expectation that God will fulfill promises made in the past. And you see the stark difference there. There's some similarity in the wording. Yeah, I got I, right. But, but the thing is, is that it's not the biblical definition of hope is not a, a wish. It's not limited just to the realms of desire. It's actually expectation and certainty. And, and you have to ask, well, why? What, what creates that difference between those two things? Well, because with the common definition, the popular definition of this word hope cuts God out of the picture. And once you've cut God out of the picture, there is no certainty. There are no guarantees. And so at that point, you are left with your desires and your wishes. And that's as far as hope can go. And I would, I would ask the question of, of, of us, myself included, here this morning, um, is that the best that we can do? Is the best that we can do when it comes to hope, is that really all we have, just wishes and our earnest desires? And if, if, if we could do better, where might we find it better? Well, I would, I would say turning to the Scriptures is a good corrective for our spiritual sight. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd, turn, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. If you're uh, trying to find that, clicking your way through or thumbing your way through, uh, that is the first of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. It's the first book of the, the New Testament. Uh, we are moving on through a, a fairly long series in, in Matthew's Gospel. We are in chapter 8. We're picking up where we left off last week in verse Five, and we're going to read on down to verse 13. So Matthew 8, beginning in verse 5, on through verse 13. Hear now God's word. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is certainly an astonishing 
thing that we are reading of here, to have witnessed that, to have heard what was said and to see what took place certainly must have been a stunning thing. Uh, but we know that, that just because we heard it, would have heard it, and just because we would have seen it, doesn't necessarily mean we would have made the connection. doesn't necessarily mean we really would have gotten it um, and all of its significance. Uh, so just as surely as people then needed your help that they would truly understand and truly grapple with what was happening, so too do we. So too do we. And uh, we ask that you would be merciful. We ask that you would be gracious and kind to us here this morning such that we would understand, um, that we would um, embrace what we see here and then live out of it in a more consistent way. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, you can learn of someone's priorities and purposes by looking at their choices. Fair? You can, you can learn about someone's priorities and purposes simply by looking at their choices. Case in point, let me give you a thought experiment here. Uh, may it never be. Okay? But let's say uh, there is an epidemic that has swept through not just the area, not just the, the nation, but the world. And it is devastating the human population. This is worse than the flu of 1918. This is worse than the bubonic plague. This is worse than Ebola. It is devastating the human population. You somehow, though, have come across a vial. A vial with a cure. There are only ten dosages, however. Who will you give those dosages to? Do you see how this will reveal your purposes and plans and priorities? Who you will give these dosages to of this life-saving medicine? Only ten, though. Only ten. Who will you choose? Well, you know, spouse, if you're married. Children, if you, if you have them, perhaps. Uh, parents, maybe. Siblings, maybe. What of significant key world leaders? What of research scientists who might be able to expand the cure, maybe, right? Going beyond just the ten, but maybe those ten that you have in mind initially will die if you go this. You see how this is real? This is a crazy, horrible thought experiment. I apologize right now. Um, I repent. Um, but uh, you, you see how, though, going through such an exercise would have a way of exposing, at least to some degree, your purposes, your, your priorities in life. Well, praise be, literally, Jesus is not limited in his resources. If you want to think in terms of his vial, it's got a lot more than ten doses. So let's just be glad for that. But that said, that said, it's interesting to see his purposes, priorities, intentions in this text and over the course of the gospel narratives. For instance, and this is somewhere where we've gone a few times in the course of this series, to chapter 4, verse 23, this, this summary verse that tells us so much, and it's so pregnant and full in terms of it, how it summarizes so much of what's going on here. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Okay. We know that that's a, a summary statement. We know that, in fact, actually not everyone heard 
and not everyone was healed. It's, it's meant to a summary blanket kind of statement there. Um, in fact, we know that not all of what Jesus taught and not all of his healings are actually recorded there when you compare the other, this text to the, to the other Gospels. Um, Matthew is, is doing, he's writing what he's writing with intentionality. Um, you can say the way that, that he relays what happened, what actually happened in time and space is he does this with purpose and intentionality, with uh, design and plan, and, and as did Jesus. Jesus' whole ministry, Jesus, all, all of the miracles as, as well, are done with purpose, with plan and intentionality. If I can put it this way, there was a purposefulness to Jesus' ministry and his miracles. As we examine then his ministry and miracles, what we find is great cause for encouragement and deep grounds for hope. Now you may be thinking at this point, if you're keeping up with me, um, if I'm making this make any sense at all, you may be asking this question, well how? How could it be that looking at the um, the intentionality and, and purposefulness of Jesus' ministry and, and these miracles in particular, how might that encourage me? How might that give me grounds for hope? Well, in the way that it gives a measure of at least these three things. And this is, these are the points in your outline. These three things. They reveal to us, at the very least, God's kindness, God's grace, and God's faithfulness. And as we peer into that and see those things exposed and revealed to us, that then ought to give us great encouragement and deep ground for hope. Let's look at these things in turn. The kindness, the grace, and the faithfulness. First, the kindness of God. We see this in, in the centurion. And we're really going to be looking a lot at this guy and the, the situation as, as he finds himself and as he interacts with Jesus and Jesus with him. This is a man in great need but really, when it comes right down to what's essential, without any resources to meet his need, which we ought to see some parallel to our own lives here in, in this. So that's the centurion. That's the situation. Let me unpack that. Why is he a man in such need and, and such dire straits? Because, well, first, thinking about the bond, the likely bond, when you understand what's happening, what his, the relationship is that he has with this servant that he's describing. Um, keep in mind that for a Roman centurion and an officer, we'll, we'll say a captain in the Roman army, roughly speaking, um, it was forbidden, they were forbidden to fraternize with the men. Okay, you can't, you can't do that. That's the way of leadership in those days. You know, no, there's no mixing, no relationship with, with the men. You've got to be above them. Okay? Also, over the course of their 20 years, 20 years of mandated service for the Roman Empire, they were forbidden to marry. So he, 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 he's cut off from his men as far as relationship. He's got no real family, no, no wife. This servant, it was very common then for there to be a deep... And you don't need to read more into this than it needs to be, okay, in a perverse sort of way. Just a, a, a bond, a friendship was quite typical between a Roman centurion and his personal attendant, the servant. This man is basically all the family... This guy has. That's the point. Okay? So when you sense why he's des as desperate and des as despairing as he is, when he comes towards 
Jesus and says this as we pick up in verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He's desperate. And we know he's desperate simply in, in, in these two ways. One, the fact that he goes to Jesus at all. Roman soldiers don't go to Jewish preachers looking for help. You don't do that in that culture. Thing one. Thing two. How we can see, the ways that we can see this desperation. Not just the fact that he goes to Jesus, but how he goes to Jesus. How does he address him? Lord. Now, at, at minimum, this is a title of respect. Again, not typical for how a Roman soldier is going to address a Jewish preacher. Could well be, even more than, by the way, respect. Could be, depending on how much he knows, and he seems to know a bit, could be an expression not just of respect, but of reverence. And that all the more is shocking, considering who this is and, and who's speaking it. Now, but it's not just how he addresses, it's the context. He does so publicly. This is not like Nicodemus, you know, the Jewish ruler, and as we read in, in John's Gospel. This is public. This man as Jesus is coming into the village. There's nothing hidden about this. He comes to Jesus, this Roman centurion, with all his men able to see this, with all the village able to see this, and by the way, all the crowds that are following Jesus into the village able to see this, and this Roman soldier says, Lord, and then presents the need. In all of that, you can hear, you can see the man's desperation. And Jesus says what? He heals the servant. Which therein is a measure of God's kindness. If nothing else, there's more, but if nothing else is a measure of God's kindness. Uh, some of you may um, remember the story of, of Jim Baker, the televangelist. Uh, this is years ago, a couple of decades ago actually. Um, uh, Jim Baker, the televangelist who was tried and, and later imprisoned for his uh, scandalous uh, financial dealings. Um, it was a huge scandal. Baker was persona non grata in the evangelical world, just ridiculed um, uh, talk show hosts, comedians just had a field day uh, with all of this. It was a, a, just a terrible scandal. Uh, Baker was, was eventually, like I said, he was in prison. He was in prison for five years. Um, but I want to read to you an account of his as he tells the story of after immediately after his release and the contact that was initiated by the Billy Graham family with Jim Baker, and in particular Ruth Graham, Billy's now late wife. Okay? So when I got this is this is a Baker's own uh, account. So when I got out of prison, the Graham sponsored me and paid for a house for me to live in and gave me a car to drive. The first Sunday out, Ruth Graham called the halfway house I was living in at the Salvation Army and asked permission for me to go to the Montreat Presbyterian Church with her that Sunday morning. When I got there, the pastor welcomed me and sat me with the Graham family. There were like two whole rows of them. I think every Graham aunt and uncle and cousin were there. The organ began playing and the place was full except for one seat next to me. Then the doors opened, and in walked Ruth Graham. She walked down that aisle and sat next to inmate 0740758. 
I had only been out of prison 48 hours, but she told the world that morning that Jim Baker was her friend. Afterwards, she had me up at their cabin for dinner. When she asked me for some addresses, I pulled this envelope out of my pocket to look for them. In prison, you're not allowed to have a wallet, so you just carry an envelope. She asked, don't you have a wallet? And I said, well, yeah, this is my wallet. After five years of brainwashing in prison, you think an envelope is a wallet. She walked into the other room and came back and said, here's one of Billy's wallets. He doesn't need it. You can have it. Friends, that is an extension of and reflection of the kindness of God. Now, my question to you is, do you believe that this morning? You're nodding your head. You're like, yeah, that's a warm, fuzzy story. No, do you believe that that actually is an extension of and reflection of the kindness of God to you this morning? Do you, or if I can put it another way, do you believe God is that kind? You may be willing to envision this event as described by Matthew in Matthew 8. You know, in your mind's eye, your imagination, you're like, yeah, I can kind of see the guy, you know, this, he's walking. I can see the dust, you know, moving under his feet and the people. I can hear the murmuring of the children and the questions and the shock and the awe. And I can almost hear Jesus saying this and, and all of that. I can envision it. And you might go further. You might even acknowledge that it actually happened. But my question is not that. Do you believe that the Lord is that kind to you? Can you make the connection between what's happening then to now, there to here? Do you believe that the Lord is that kind? See, these, these miracles, there's a purposefulness here. At the very least, at the very least, they are revealing to us great grounds, again, for encouragement and hope. But it's not just the kindness. It's also the grace. Not just the kindness of God, but the grace of God. Now, I want to explain why I say that. Again, related to the Roman centurion. This man is not just a, a man in need without resources. He is a doer of good deeds. But those deeds have no merit. Now, let me explain why I say that. He's a doer of good deeds. Laudable works, we could even say. Capernaum, a little background here. Capernaum is a, is a, was a small village uh, up there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was built at, uh, right where well, I guess it was, it was there, and then because of the geography, you see these trading routes. It's the, at the intersection of these trading routes. Okay, So there's a lot of traffic moving through, I guess you could say. And it's, it's a sea town as well, fishing community there. And because of that, the Romans built, understandably, an out, a garrison there. And in fact, just in recent years, archaeologists have uncovered an outpost just, I think it's to the east, just to the, to the east of the ruins, now, now the ruins of Capernaum. Also there within uh, the, the ruins of the town of Capernaum, you can still see today, because it was unearthed, a third century synagogue. You can walk it. You can, you can step on the stones of, of where th people in the third century were worshiping there in the city of Capernaum. You're like, well, what, who cares about the third century? This is the first century. Right, very good. That third century synagogue was built on the very foundation stones 
of a first century synagogue, which Luke tells us, Luke 7, this man paid to have built. Today you can see the stones, the foundation stones of that first century synagogue that this guy, as Matthew tells us, and excuse me, as Luke tells us in his gospel, Luke 7, same guy that Matthew's telling us about here in Matthew 8, this guy built. Whoa! That's amazing! And so it also has nothing to do with the text. It's not the emphasis of the text. I mean, yes, this man did a wonderful thing. And that's in no way the emphasis of the text. His good deeds, his laudable works, but rather his necessary vital faith. That's the emphasis. That's the emphasis. You see it in the exchange that takes place between Jesus and, and this man. He comes, and you'll note, he doesn't even ask Jesus for anything. I don't know if you picked up on that. You might have thought there's a question mark there at the end of verse uh, 6, but there, there's actually not. Um, he just states the situation. He just states the need. Now, you may be thinking, well, it's a reasonable question. Why doesn't he ask? It's quite possible because he's afraid of being rejected. And I'll explain why in just a few minutes. So he comes and states the need. That's it. Jesus, though, is intent on drawing him out. And so you suddenly pick up again here, verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he, Jesus, said to him, centurion, I will come and heal him. Literally, literally the emphasis, or I could say the emphasis, the emphasis here is, will I, emphasis on the I, will I come and heal him? Jesus is pressing him, pressing him, drawing him, him out. And this centurion's like, no, no, he, he then responds, pick up verse 8, um, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes to my servant, do this, and he does it. This is astonishing. What this man, what Jesus said to him already is astonishing, and the guy's response is equally, if not more so, astonishing. There's this profound, deep humility that he, that he shows. And then also, his understanding. He gets at least to some degree who Jesus is. He's, in essence, he's saying, look, I'm a Lord, and you're a Lord. I say to men, do this, and they obey. You say to creation. Do this, and it obeys. You can heal however you want. You can heal from wherever you want. Please, just heal. And Jesus, Jesus is astonished. This is the one time in Matthew's Gospel. The one time in Matthew, and can you imagine this is God in the flesh being astonished. It's a beautiful thing, a head-scratching thing. Jesus is marveling at this man's faith. Marvels at this man's faith. And this is what we read in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He's not marveling that he built the synagogue. He's not marveling about his good works. He's not amazed by how good a guy he was. 
He's amazed. He's marveling at his faith. That's the point. That's the point. This miracle shows us, a, it gives us a measure of God's grace in that this guy comes to Jesus, leaving everything else, just dropping it on the floor, and just laying hold, leaning into, relying on, trusting in, putting his faith in, the weight of his whole heart in this one before him. Which had to have been completely alien to his experience. Right? I mean, the guy is a Roman centurion. Why does he have the status that he does? Because he's been promoted up through the ranks. Why are you promoted? Well, I'm assuming best case scenario, because of performance. You know, not politics and all that, though I don't doubt that probably had something to do. You know, and then, then is now. Now is then. But it's mostly his performance, and so he's promoted. That's, that's why he, he's done well, and that's why he is at where he's, he's at. Terrible grammar, I know. Um, but he also, in terms of his day-to-day -day living, you know, he's, a, he's, he's the boss, he's the captain, he's the centurion. It, his job is to oversee men under him, and he will evaluate them according to how well they do or do not carry out their duties. So this grace thing, without taking into account what you've done or haven't, is alien. It is foreign to him, as I would say it is to us. That's not how we are used to functioning and working. It, it's, it's, it's otherworldly. Well, yeah, actually it is. Um, and, and I think there's two questions. I know I need to press on here to the third point, but there's a couple of questions that are, are worth asking here at this point of, our, of ourselves. You know, really, it's, it's something here that, that cuts at the heart of our assurance. How much is enough? How many synagogues do you have to build? How good a guy, how good a gal do you have to be before it's enough? It just, it, 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 if we go through life thinking it's about what we merit, what God, in essence, you know, the other side of that is what God owes us in, in that, what we're earning and deserving, there's no assurance whatsoever to be found in that. And in addition to that, not only do we have to ask the question, when is enough enough? But we also have to ask, with, with Jesus hanging, you know, in, with his finished work, the cross, his work, we have to ask, why is that not enough? When is that going to be enough for us? So, so not just thinking in terms of something that cuts at the heart of our assurance, but something that, you know, understandably would give offense to his heart. When is this going to be enough for you? Our rest, our peace, our standing, our security is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is enough. And that is enough. In this miracle, we get a measure of that. Not just seeing here the, the kindness of God, but the very grace of God. And one more thing. This takes us to the third point. Not just the, the kindness and not just the grace, but the faithfulness of God. 
And as far as how Matthew relays this, and it seems this may well be his, what he most wants us to see, this may be it. Now this man, back, back to the centurion, he, he is a man of, of power and influence. And no standing. You might think, well, how can that be? Well, again, think with me. Who is he? Where is he? What's going on here? This is not a two-dimensional figure we're dealing with here. There's a lot of nuance going on to what it meant to be this guy. And I get an understanding just of what we read here in Matthew's Gospel and a little bit of help from Luke's as well. In, in that there's deep estrangement here, relationally speaking, on the, on the horizontal plane at the very least, in that he is part of, think with me, He's a key player in an occupying army in hostile territory. He is, he is in essence, a, a captain. It's, it's like in World War II. He's like a Nazi captain in occupied France. He's a Roman centurion in occupied Galilee. How well do you think he's really thought of? Going beyond that, he is also a Gentile. An understanding, that is to say, from a Jewish perspective, a non-Jew. Okay? And from a Jewish perspective, at this time and place, and what that means is, you are known as the uncircumcision. You are known as the rebellious, the foolish. You are looked down upon. You are scorned. You are referred to, behind closed doors, as a dog, and not like little Fifi that gets up in your lap. I'm talking about the kind of dogs that lived in that time, in that space, that were scavengers, filthy animals you'd never want your child to play with, that lived and breathed off the, the fields and the streets and cleaning up because of what they ate, the bodies and the trash. That's how this unnamed centurion, in essence, really is regarded by the people of Capernaum and all of Galilee as a hostile occupier and a dog. Now, how does Jesus respond to him? How does Jesus engage with this man? Verses 10 through 12. When Jesus heard this, what he said, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And oh, oh, the, where he was marveling before, here he is mourning. Surely mourning. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, a way of referring to the Jewish people, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is giving here a warning to his fellow Jews. It is not by your race. It is not by your pedigree. It is through faith. It is through grace. It is through me. It is by the promise of God. And that's it. He's giving this warning and he uses these horrific, grim images. You don't even get the full of it in the English. You could really translate this. And in that place there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. 
terrifying images. Warning to his fellow Jews, but at the same time, this beautiful, beautiful assurance and invitation to all peoples, to all nations, saying, there is a place at the table for you. And by this, that, that's not a conference room table. <laughs> that's a banquet hall table. At this celebration, and that, that image of a banquet, of that kind of a table, when you go back and you look through the Old Testament and the, the, what that's intended to convey, that is an image of celebration. That is an image of, of intimacy and, and um, of, of, of fellowship and solidarity of, of between God and his people and, and they, one another, as, as well. And he's saying, that, 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 that it can be yours. There's a place at this table for you, just as was promised to Abraham, right? We read that earlier in Genesis 12. Just as was predicted and foreseen by the prophets. We read Isaiah 49. Just as you see foreshadowed in Matthew's gospel, in the genealogy with, with people like the Rahab the prostitute there in Jericho, or Ruth from the hill country of Moab, or then a little bit later in the, in the birth narrative, the, well, the Nativity narrative, how do you want to call that? There in Matthew 2, the Magi, the wise men, come from the east, representing the nations coming to Jesus to worship the king, the foreshadowing of what will be and why he had come. And yet his people couldn't see the larger, grander, beautiful picture, kaleidoscope vision that he has for his kingdom and the citizens of the kingdom. Jesus heals this servant. And that is a glimpse, that is a picture of his faithfulness to these promises, these long, deep, beautiful promises unfolding and now coming to fruition. Now, I don't know, I'm sure some of you have, have uh, had the opportunity to, to be on the receiving end of like these, I think, is it silver, the 50th anniversary for a wedding? Is that right, silver? These beautiful celebrations where a husband and wife are celebrating the 50th wedding anniversary. And, and, and it's this, uh, several of these, my grandparents and, and others through the years being able to just sit and marvel or some of the stories that are told in news accounts of this couple and, you know, the, the, the accounts that they can give of faithfulness, right? Over the course of those years and they're being able to recount how they could tr ultimately it's never perfect, but ultimately rely on and trust in and look to one another over the course of 50 years. And it's a beautiful thing worth celebrating. Well, you know, rightly understood, the Christian life should be like that every day. And we're not talking about 50 years. We're talking about thousands of years. And in more ways than we could possibly imagine and count are the ways that the Lord has been faithful to us, His people. And in ways that you don't even have a clue that he has been faithful to you in your own lifetime. And I know it's, it's often said in conjunction with, with something like this that the question then goes, look, he's, he's promised to secure and take care of your eternity. Can you not trust him for tomorrow, for today, for this thing? Oh my goodness. Yes! Yes, he has promised, so then will we trust him? But I would add one more thing, especially because of Matthew's emphasis of including this man. This man intended to expand the vision 
of his readers and Jesus of his hearers and witnesses of what's happening here is, yes, God has promised, and so the question is, will we trust him? But he has also declared there's to be, as we've been seeing here, the text we've been reading over the course of this service, Psalm 67 and Genesis 12 and, and Isaiah 49, and now here, there is to be an outward focus. It's never about, never was intended to be just about us and our holy huddle. There's a dying, dark world out there. Remember the Sermon on the Mount earlier? You are to be salt and light, meaning what? It's a dying world. It's a decaying world. And he intends to, for us to move out as salt into that. And it does no good if that salt stays in that proverbial shaker. Or it's a dark world. A shady, shadowy world. And we are sent forth as light into it. Well, that never happens if we stay under a shade or a bushel. There's all of that in here. This is this purposefulness to these miracles. And the Lord intends for us to lay hold of them. The, uh, the kindness and the grace and the faithfulness that we would have encouragement and hope. And I would just tell you this last thing as I'm ending this. Um, I had a completely different conclusion in mind up until about mid-afternoon yesterday as I was walking our dog. And I was going to talk about Garrison Keeler and the end of the Prairie Home Companion storytelling and blah, 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 blah. Maybe another time. It hit me, thinking about this, the extent to which Jesus wants us to know. That he wants us to know of his kindness and grace and faithfulness, such that he goes to such lengths, he takes such trouble that we would know. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the host, the gracious host who knows exactly what their weary travelers need as they collapse into their home. Or, or the, the chef who doesn't just prepare a meal, doesn't just slap food down on a table, but prepares a culinary experience. Or, or, or the builder, the carpenter, who's not willing to settle for just building a structure. Or, or abiding by safety codes, but has something of a, of a grand work of art in mind. And it's like that here with Jesus. It, it was as though it wasn't enough for him to leave the beauty and wonder and perfection of heaven and then come to the rebelliousness and ugliness and foolishness of earth. It was as though it wasn't enough for him as the author of creation, the the maker of time and space, the bread and fountain of life, to come here and put death to death by his death. It was as though that wasn't enough. But he was intent on the way he did all of that in the course of his ministry and how he did what he did and the course of these miracles and how he performed them and carried them out that we would then see even in that his kindness and his grace and his faithfulness to us because we so desperately need to know those things. And in love towards us, he wants us to hear that, know that, embrace that, and live out of that. He so wants us to 
to know. Praise be to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we know that You as the wise, all-wise, all-powerful, all-good King that You are, there is never anything that is haphazard or random to Your dealings, to Your ways. Everything is with purpose and intent. Everything. Everything. So even as we read in the Gospel accounts, we need to be asking the question, what am I learning here? And then as we go through life, even this week, even this upcoming week, as we live and struggle and wonder and doubt, asking not, not just what can we learn here, but what can I know here? What can I know here? That my King is kind, that He's gracious, and He is faithful. And we ask that You'd give us the hearts to, 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 to live out of that and be able to testify to that, to all that we meet. We, name, we pray this in your name. Amen. Let me ask my, uh, our, our ushers if